For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Tonight, we'll be chanting the Repentance verse three times, followed by the Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra, and then we'll close with the Four Vows. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutara Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva When deeply practicing Prajnaparamita Clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty And thus relieved all suffering Shariputra Form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Self is emptiness. Emptiness itself forms sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness are also like this. Shadi Putra, all dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease, are neither defiled nor pure, neither increase nor decrease. Therefore, given emptiness, there there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sights, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight, no realm of mind consciousness. There is neither ignorance Extinction of ignorance, neither old age and death, nor extinction of old age and death, no suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, no knowledge, and no attainment with nothing to attain a bodhisattva, relies on prajna paramita and thus 
thus the mind is without hindrance, without hindrance. There is no fear far beyond all inverted views. One realizes nirvana, all Buddhas of past, present, and future rely on prajna paramita and thereby attain unsurpassed complete perfect enlightenment. Therefore know the prajna paramita as the great miraculous mantra, the great bright mantra, the supreme mantra, the incomparable mantra which removes all suffering and is true, not false. Therefore we proclaim the prajna paramita mantra, the mantra that says gate gate paragate parasangate bodhisattva. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the heart of great perfect wisdom sutra. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehe Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shinryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, Wisdom beyond wisdom, Maha Prajna Paramita. I guess it's my turn. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay, good. I was having audio problems earlier. <clears throat> so good evening, everyone. I'm Douglas Floyd. I'm happy to be here, although this is a small group and I know all of you pretty well. So I'm feeling it, it, it doesn't really decrease the pressure. <laughs> it sort of increases it because I know you'll remember <laughs> how, how, uh, how this goes. Um, I wanted to talk tonight about uh, thoughts in Zazen uh, monkey mind and um, my own experience with them, differences in approaches to how uh, people have taught Zazen and how to deal with thoughts and thinking in Zazen. Um, I think Matt may have heard some of this before, but 
I'll begin by saying that, that the problem of thinking and distraction in Zazen was a problem that really um, I found very frustrating when I first learned to sit. Um, I learned to sit uh, way back in 1972 and had to teach myself to do breath counting from a book called Three Pillars of Zen, which was at that time, um, really, I think one of two books that were widely available that talked about how to do meditation. The other one was called uh, um, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, which was a, a Theravadan meditation manual by uh, a German who was a monk who was living in Sri Lanka and he was teaching a Burmese meditation method that had been invented by the Mahasi Sayadaw and become very popular in, in, um, in Burma. So Three Pillars of Zen is a book that I know some of you are familiar with, especially Gyoshin, I think. Um, it's, it's really... Um, a composite work. It's a collect, for the most part, it's a collection of uh, lectures by a Japanese uh, Zen master, uh, Hagwon Yasutani, transcripts of Dokusan that Yasutani Roshi had with some of his students, um, some other lectures of Yasutani's, and then written enlightenment Kensho experiences that some of his students had. And after he had certified their Kensho, they were required to write out the description of the history of their practice and their experience of Kensho. Yasutani was kind of an interesting man because he was an ordained Soto priest, but he spent most of his life studying with another Soto priest, um, uh, Sugaku Harada, who had studied both with Soto and Rinzai teachers, received Inka Shome from a Rinzai teacher and dedicated his life to teaching um, koan practice after that, having found that in his opinions, uh, Soto teachers of the day had, um, had lost uh, sight of true Zen and the need for Kensho enlightenment experiences. I guess Tani Roshi had very much the same um, opinion. And, and it's kind of interesting because as a young monk, he had studied for some time with Nishiari Bokusan, who was a great Dogen scholar and um, really knew a fair amount about what Dogen's position was on Zazen. But yes, Tani uh, criticized Nishiari uh, later on uh, after he received uh, transmission from Harada. So because his, uh, Yasutani's focus was not just koan practice, but a sort of very muscular koan practice involving great strenuous effort. And he's, he did teach um, breath counting and uh, following the breath and shikantaza, but those were really sort of preliminary practices leading up to developing the concentration necessary to do um, koan practice in, in his system. Or alternatively, you could do them because you didn't have regular contact with a Zen teacher, and so you couldn't have regular dokusan to talk about, to present your 
understanding of a koan and get the Zen master's result. So you would perf- you would do breath counting, following the breath, or or shikantaza, sort of as the slow road to enlightenment. Because you did if you did them wholeheartedly and with great effort over time, you without even without trying to become awakened right now. Um, you would ripen and eventually have a Kensho experience, which was the whole point of it. And while he would, he, his understanding of Dogen was that the practice of Zazen was itself, you know, um, the actualization of inherent awakening. He said, you want to understand what that means until you've had Kensho way out in the future. So, um, but that was what was available. I, did, I didn't know that there were other approaches to Zazen. But um, just to give you an example of how different Yasutani's approach to Zazen was from what we're familiar with, I, I can tell you that um, in each case, those who were um, involving a great deal of effort, intense struggle to gain control of the mind, and there were concentration practices that were intended to bring about profound states of samadhi, which would lay a foundation for an awakening experience down the road. So when he would, he would talk about um, counting your breath, he would say that you would um, uh, exert all of your energy in counting your breath and you would be intensely involved in sitting that your mind and body would be taught like uh, the mind and body of someone involved in a sword duel who might die at any moment. Um, and um, that's, that's a very different approach from what we're used to. The one overlap would be he, did, he said that, um, you know, uh, thoughts that might appear during your zazen were not something to be worried about. They weren't really a problem as long as you didn't pursue them and get caught up in them, you didn't try to suppress them. But on the other hand, the whole point of um, this intense concentration was to sort of suppress thoughts and thinking in order to create these samadhi states. So because that's what was available, um, that's what I taught myself to do. And I have to say that given the kind of person I am, or certainly was at that time, which was a very directed sort of type A person who, you know, saw a problem, which is, you know, my life isn't making sense and I want to find something to do this. And it sounds like Buddhism is the thing and meditation is the thing. Give me a method and I will really uh, work at it. And so I would practice that intense concentration on breath counting, exerting all of my energy on counting the breath and uh, to, with mixed results. You know, I, I would say that I, I, it was certainly not a waste of time, but and I would say that letting, the, letting thoughts arise and fall, arise and fall, arise, um, uh, so that they could then just charge their energy, let's say, the emotional energy behind them, and then disappear, certainly, I think, helped me to process feelings around difficult issues that would arise from time to time. But that intense concentration, uh, that tautness, um, 
would some certainly would sometimes generate a real sense a, a sense of clarity and sometimes give rise to un, unusual experiences which i won't claim to include enlightenment but that tautness was something i experienced as, as tension and um and far from suppressing thoughts just that kind of energy uh that concentration that it, attempt to control Zazen, if anything, caused more thinking to come up and resulted in my becoming more caught up in thoughts uh, and distracted during Zazen. So after I had been doing that, I guess for a couple of years, I found my way to a Tibetan retreat center in, in Vermont and learned a form of meditation that's is not really distinguishable from the zazen that we practice, and that um, I found myself much more at home there and found that to be much more productive. Although, as I said, I'm a, I certainly have been a very directed uh, type A personality. So anytime, you know, from time to time, as I would practice, if I was finding myself bothered by thoughts in zazen and getting distracted, the automatic reaction was to just seize on the breath and focus very hard and concentrate and strain very hard to uh, develop that concentration that was going to quiet my mind. So, you know, that, that's a very different approach, that, that concentration, that intense effort, that intent to immediately cultivate a special state of mind, this special deep samadhi, that eventually would lead to a Kensho experience is different, very different from what we've experienced where, you know, fundamentally Zazen practice as we do it is, you know, uh, take an upright, uh, you know, sit upright, don't move, uh, let thoughts come and go, leave the thoughts alone, don't focus on the thoughts, don't analyze the thoughts. Don't try to stop the thoughts. No control. Keep breathing. That's always important. And that's pretty much it. You know, Suzuki Roshi's position on this was that just that the state of mind we have when we take the posture of Zazen is itself enlightenment. And that is certainly Dogen's position too. Because I know you remember in Fukan Zazengi, you know, um, how Dogen says that after talking about where you should sit, how you should sit, what your posture is like, then he says you take the backward step that shines the light within and your original face appears. Your original face is this world is seen from a position of awakening where it is this indivisible world of everything, including yourself. That's that's what we experience in Zazen. Um, we are here, we are aware of this uh, physical world, we're aware of our body and our posture, our breathing, our thoughts, our feelings, our desires that come and go, come and go, within that awareness. And that awareness of right here, right now, is your original mind. Um, 
you know, um, so I think the important part about about this is that we're not going to in any way focus or observe the thoughts. We're going to be aware of them because thoughts are inherently a form of awareness. You don't have to direct your thought, your attention at thoughts to be aware of them because they are inherently a form of awareness. Um, but we just let them come and go, let them come and go, let them come and go. It can be helpful to feel your breathing or to count your breath on, on the exhalation, you know, breathe out, one, breathe out, two, which isn't a form of concentration. Um, it's, it's, it's a way of staying in touch with this experience of being here now physically as part of, the, of this moment, reminding of us of our body. It's a light touch. It's not concentration. It's not excluding anything from your awareness. It is an open, inclusive form of awareness. It's like you don't have to try to make it open, inclusive just holding the posture, sitting upright, not moving, letting thoughts come and go, leaving your mind alone. That's what will happen. Uh, this awareness sitting here and now in this situation, the awareness that ar arises, um, Suzuki Roshi called big mind. Um, Nantuan called it ordinary mind. Dogen and other people would call it original mind or original face, your original nature. Um, you know, it's your original nature because that awareness of the world, what's going on in the world, your body, your mind, is there all along. It is always there, even if we're distracted so that we are not paying attention, we're not aware of it. And as soon as, if we become distracted, as soon as there's a gap in the thinking and we're back, there it is. There it is. Big mind is there. Original face is there. This, is, uh, this awareness is always there. Um, it's called big mind because as you sit there, it encompasses everything in your situation and including the, the small mind of thoughts and feelings and desires and judgments uh, and um, I don't know, maybe you call it mental acts, acts of focusing or concentration. All of those take place within big mind. They are big mind. Um, so the message in our form of sitting is that thoughts in Zazen are not a problem. Um, we don't have to worry about them. Uh, the thoughts coming and going and coming and going, that's something that our mind does. But it's not a problem until, as is inevitably the case, we will grab onto some thought or feeling or judgment, or I, I like to think more of we get caught up in thoughts and feelings and judgments, or we are our, our awareness, our attention is absorbed by those uh, but that's not really a problem because we're not aware of the problem while that's going on. What happens is there's a, a space develops, a gap in the thinking, and we come back and we become aware that we're not living inside and we're not inhabiting those thoughts or feelings or judgments. 
uh, in that sort of constrained world, little world where it's just me and the object of my thought, me and the object of my desire, me and the object of my thinking, I'm back in big mind, I'm back right here and now. And those thoughts and feelings aren't my world anymore. They are mental phenomena that I'm aware of coming and going and coming and going. Um, so I think the reassurance we can always have is that whenever we get caught up in thoughts, there's nothing to do. We don't cause ourselves to become mindful or aware or come back. We become aware automatically. Our mind, that's the awareness, being awake, being here is the default position for our mind. And so there will always, once we get distracted and there's a train of thought or feeling, there will be an opening in which we return right here. And our response is not to try to focus on something or try to be mindful of something. It is just to correct our posture, check our breathing, let the thoughts continue to come and go and stay with it. So it's not a matter of, of a um, forceful concentration, a willful exercise, an attempt at control. It's allowing awakening to come. It disappears. We recognize that it comes again and we are willing when it comes back simply to stay here. We're not aiming at some specific state of clarity or concentration or awakening. We sit with this experience in this situation, with this posture, with these thoughts and feelings, judgments, whatever is going on. And so I, I think what you could say is it's not just a matter of leaving your mind alone not attempting to control your mind, not trying to focus or concentrate or be mindful because you are aware already. It's really a matter that apart from maintaining your posture, breathing, perhaps counting, there is no deliberate activity whatsoever. The thoughts that come and go, come and go, um, come and go on their own. And when we do undertake some deliberate activity, when we, when we go, something reminds us, say, of there's a meeting tomorrow and we say, okay, I'm, what am I going to do about that meeting? What do I have to do to be prepared for that? That's, we, can, we refrain from doing that. But if we do that, the thing to note is that we are caught up in the thinking just as much as if that whirling train of thought that goes on all the time, the monkey mind had caught us and we'd gotten trapped. So that intentional activity, mental activity that uh, draws us away from this awareness right here and now in the same way as if we get caught up in the whirl of thoughts coming and going, coming and going. Um, and and um, Unlike the experience that 
experience of original nature, original face sitting right here, which is an experience of being here in the wholeness of this moment, wholeness of this situation, that intentional thinking and the thinking that we're involved in when we uh, get caught up in thinking is inherently dualistic. There is always an object of the thing of the thought. There's me and the object of the thought. There's me and the object of the desire. There's me and some judgment, some ranking, some decision that's good or bad. I like that. I don't like that. There's me and the object, the result of some action that I'm planning to take. Um, but again, that arises uh, in the middle of big mind. And if we are not caught up in them, while the thoughts and emotions are and judgments are inherently deluded, it's not a problem because we're not caught up in them in the same way. We're not uh, controlled or under the power of that dualistic split between me and the object of my mental activity. So, um, just to distinguish this from what has been from time to time my natural inclination on how to do Zazen when faced with thinking and just Tani's approach, right? There is no attempt at control. There is no attempt at concentration. There is no attempt to develop a special state of mind. Just this right here, just coming back to this, becoming awakening to being this right here. Um, that's fairly short, but my intention was to, um, to give people a chance to talk about their experience with thinking and distraction in Zazen and how you might be dealing with it. Thank you. Wait. Thank you so much, Douglas. That was just wonderful. I'm going to ask a question that will go in the direction you don't want to go, probably. <laughs> um, as you uh, referred to, I spent somewhere like eight or nine years uh, practicing uh, with the idea of achieve, achieving Kensho. Uh, and one of the things I ask myself now, I feel like I've, I feel like that was a, not quite sure what the right word is. That was a, uh, a strange place that I inhabited that I escaped from or something like that. Uh, but I ask myself, because I read all those Kensho experiences over and over again, what do you make of them? What is what was the Kensho that those people were describing with such um, uh, dramatic uh, uh, sort of irresistible? power yeah what did they what happened to them what was that <laughs> i i 
really don't. I really want to know. And I mean, maybe it's not the same thing to all of them there because there were many, many people who described something that, you know, that I hadn't experienced. But, oh, my God, it was pretty big deal. But I don't know what it was. Um. Well, since we don't know, they didn't really describe <laughs> it too much. It's kind of hard to know what it was. I, my own inclination is to think that a Kinsho experience is um, a version of the experience that we have when we do Zazen. And original, my, original nature appears to us. Um, and... I don't think, I mean, our experience of that can become more stable and vivid and available to us over time. Unlike Yastani Roshi, I don't think it requires that kind of intense effort to do it. I think it's available to us because it is, it is the inherent fundamental nature of our awareness if we are not caught up in mental activities and we are not distracted from it. Um, I would speculate that maybe as a result of that intense concentration practice and the amount of effort, they, that recognition of this right here is extremely powerful and vivid and moving. But I, and that's that's what I would speculate. Um, and and I say that partly because um, just having talked to people who've, you know, having myself spent ten years in the Sambu Kyodan group, you know, in that Harada Yasutani lineage, but not very different. They practice very differently from Yasutani and Harada. And from talking from uh, to Rinzai people and reading about Rinzai people, I feel like there's so much in common with them. Um, I really don't, you know, um, Yastani can be very extreme, and those, those Kensho stories I think are a very have been a very bad influence for many people. They were very bad influence. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, people write poems that are evidence of their awakening to truth, but they don't melt down. (laughs) (laughs) They don't don't sweat and wet their pants and all these things that happen. I think you're exaggerating a little bit. (laughs) It's impossible to exaggerate. It's like so extreme. Okay, I'll I'll be quiet now. Well, I've always you know, wondered think, about it. It's like something that's such a mystery to me. Yeah, I think that I think that if there's a trade-off of that sort of uh, hard, hard straining muscular training for a long period of time to lead to an extremely intense experience of this, I think that you know that's a trade-off that no one is in a position to make when they begin their practice. But I do feel like they're sacrificing experience that they, that they could have had immediately beginning probably the first time they sat on his afu and which over time would 
become more vivid and more stable and available to them just by saying, okay, the, yes, here it is. I, here I am, or here it is. Um, that, that kind of happened. Um, but that's not a trade-off. I don't think anyone is in a position to make because that very kind of straining uh, practice is an impediment to that experience of this right here. And I have to say that my teacher, my Samokyodan teacher, Ruben Habito at Maria Kanan Zinsider did not teach in that way. And um, so I don't feel that practicing koan under Ruben's instruction was an impediment to that experience of awakening to this right now. Anyway, uh, Taigan, you wanted to say something? Yeah. Um, I'm real, first of all, thank you, Douglas, for a very practical talk. Uh, this is this the issues you raised. <clears throat> excuse me, um, are something we all experience as Zen sitters. I do want to talk a little bit about Kensho, um, and um, you know, I think part part of what happens in at least some versions of Sambokyodan or Rinzai is that there's this very intense, as as uh, Gyosha Laurel was talking about, this very intense kind of pressure cooker kind of atmosphere. And so sometimes what happens is this kind of catharsis where, you know, somebody feels released from that. And I don't, I don't know that that's... Uh, well, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. I'm, I've been teaching this and studying this uh, text called the Awakening of Mahayana Faith, which was a very early uh, 6th century Chinese Buddhist uh, uh, text that really influenced a lot of East Asian Buddhism. And it makes the distinction, there's a neat translation of it, between inherent awakening and initial awakening. I think this is a helpful way of thinking about all of this. Inherent awakening is what you were talking about, Douglas, this original mind, this kind of basic uh, Buddha nature, to use that term, that's that's always, that's here, that all of you have some experience of. Um, that's inherent awakening. Then there's initial awakening where somebody awakens at some time. So the Buddha awakened under the Bodhi tree or, you know, sometimes in Kensho experiences. I've had a couple of Kensho experiences in Seshin, uh, one major, one, you know, a couple, not so much, but the point is that that, that as making Kensho the goal is a real trap. Uh, and this is part of why I dislike that book about Yasutani, <laughs> as I think you know, Douglas, um, that, that to try and get to some particular place or state of mind or have some idea of some goal, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll also say that for some people, and maybe for type A people, it can be helpful to do that kind of practice. So yeah. I'm not saying that, that's, that that may not be helpful for some people, but fundamentally, it's the, these experiences uh, um, of what we might call initial awakening, awakening at some point, are just confirmations of inherent awakening. Uh, and, and help us to see that which over the course of time regularly sustaining a more gentle zazen practice like we do here just sitting and being present it's it's like Suzuki Roshi talks about walking through 
the fog in, in, in Golden Gate Park and his robes getting wet. You know, gradually we, we uh, realize this fundamental inherent awakening. Um, so, you know, Kensho, but Kensho, all, the, all those dramatic stories, you know, of these dramatic Kensho experiences, those happen. Those happen in Soto Zen too, you know, more likely in, in Seshin than in, uh, you know, just everyday sitting. But, you know, they, they can happen any time. But they're not, that's not the point of our practice. That's kind of the starting point of our practice. Uh, so having had Kensho experiences myself in Seshin, uh, I would say that, the, as you were saying, Dogen, the, uh, Douglas, Thank you. <laughs> Dogen, Douglas, <laughs> uh, uh, as Dogen says too, uh, you know, the very first time I had Zazen instruction from my first teacher was a Japanese Soto priest. The very first time I just had this sense, I don't know how I could have articulated it this way, but I had this deep sense of wholeness it wasn't dramatic like a Kensho experience or I don't know. It was, it was, but it was wonderful. And I just knew, Oh, this is it. And I, as I spoke about uh, last, I spoke last Sunday or the Sunday before about Unkei, the, uh, the Buddhist statues I saw in Japan. So I had that background uh, for, for, the, for uh, being aware of this, but uh, just to sit and be present and upright, as you were very well describing Douglas, uh, is an initial awakening too. Yeah. Well, so, I think that but, Kensho but, can, but it's such can, you know, I, I think, think, yes, that people have those experiences in, in Sato too. I think it can involve a more profound understanding of, of some things. It, it can also just uh, be inspirational to, to continue practice. So I, yeah, they like can be helpful. Bad thing. No, it's not that they're bad, but what's a yeah. problem is that some people have some dramatic Kensho experience and they think, oh, I'm enlightened, whatever that is. And, and yeah. then they get into big trouble. And uh, some teachers who've gotten into trouble because I think they, you know, are enlightened, what, you know, as if there could be an enlightened person. Uh, and uh, then they then what they think they can do whatever and they and they ignore ethical conduct and and uh, compassion. So, uh, but I want to say something. One other thing about Kensho, which is f- that in Orthodox Rinzai Zen, this is from an article by uh, Victor Sogen Hori, who's a was a, later a professor of Buddhism at McGill, but practiced intensely in Rinzai Zen in Japan before that, and is. Uh, at least at one point, was the American who had gone furthest in the formal Rinzai uh, koan curriculum. He just, he has a wonderful article in a book that Stephen Hine and Dale Wright co-edited about koan, uh, just a really wonderful article on Kensho, and he says Kensho is a verb. So the problem is when you think Kensho is something you have to get. He says, Ken, in, in, and he's talking from uh, from a, being a, a Rinzai monk and from being in the Orthodox Rinzai system, and and, and there, ken, Kensho is to Kensho things. So Kensho means to see into the nature of things. So uh, as you said, Dogen talks about Buddha nature, not Kensho. But the point is, 
how to Kensho this experience. So these, this group of thoughts, as you were talking about, Douglas, you know, when some thoughts arise in Sazen, as of course they do, and continue to, even after, you know, dramatic Kenshas, uh, of course. But to see through them is what Kensho is. It's, it's, it's a verb, it's to Kensho them, or to Kensho some situation, or to Kensho some problem. Uh, so anyway, just, uh, uh, and then the last thing I wanted to say is just to talk, you, you, you know, again, I really appreciated your talk. You were talking about kinds of awareness and uh, there's this awareness that's deeper than thinking. It's deeper than thoughts beyond thinking. Dogen calls it uh, Hishirio uh, or Fushirio. Anyway, um, so there's so there's thinking and there's awareness, and just to make that distinction, we can have awareness even in the spaces that happen sometimes between thinking. Yes. So anyway, just to say to say all of that to add to what you said, and thank you for your talk. And I'm sure there are other questions. <laughs> and to be fair to Yastani, um, when someone had a kinsho experience, that wasn't the end. He didn't say, "Okay." great, you're enlightened, you're done. Um, they anticipated that there would be a lot of additional zazen to mature and precept study as well. Um, so uh, it's not, I mean, not as if they, he was some crazy heretical guy or something like that. Um, but uh, but that approach has been misused as Goshen has yeah. expressed. Yeah, I would just say I do I do not miss the emphasis on Kensho. <laughs> yeah, well, and in my former experience with Sambokiran, they didn't talk about it. So uh, unlike other, there were Sambokiran places where at the end of a session, people who had, had Kensho certified would be called up to the front of the room and everyone would bow to them. And, you know, that was not my experience. So uh, that was not the experience of, of Yastani's uh, Dharma heir who took over Sambu Kyodan after he died, uh, Kohun Yamada Roshi. He did not do that. And, uh, a less extreme approach to practicing with quant. Cool. Um, I, I again early in your talk when you talked about um, the instruction to expend all your energy focusing on counting the breath. And again, I can only imagine that if you're counting, I mean, you're trying to expend all your energy with it. Again, it is physical tension or muscular tension is upon further reflection. Is that what they mean? Cause I, 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 that just feels so odd, the idea of expanding all your energy on it as opposed to opening to it and allowing energy to come in, which is kind of the way I tend to experience it. Yeah, there, you know, Yastani and some of the other people in that school were very big on the idea of 
developing Jariki, the concentration energy, the spiritual power created by concentration and samadhi. And so putting energy in was kind of like building up this battery of spiritual energy that then would flower as Kensho, I think. And, and you know, it, it just did very much. I mean, people could be so focused. They would be breathing heavily. Yes, Tani would have people practicing the mukon, screaming all night long, moo, 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 just focus on that and pour every bit of energy, physical and intellectual, whatever, cognitive energy into moo. Uh, it's just, it's a very, very different approach. And, and um, you know, I have, I'm sure, you know, there are different kinds of training appropriate for different kinds of people. And that was, that would not have been, that would not have worked for me. It would have played up to all my, the worst aspects of my type A personality. Wait. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the connection or, or lack of connection, I suppose, between um, big mind and ordinary mind. Like, are those concepts the same, similar, different? Were they related? Um, I, th I think it's the same mind. Um, ordinary mind is translated different ways too. Um, so it's sometimes ordinary mind, sometimes it's everyday mind. The idea is that it's, it's the mind that's there. It's not an extraordinary, exotic, special experience, but it's an awareness that's there all the time. You know, and the story is, right, when Zhao Zhou, when he was a young monk, not the 120-year-old monk who died after being a respected teacher for a long time. He was a student of Nantuan's and he goes to Nantuan and says, what is the Tao? And Nantuan says, ordinary mind is the Tao. And, and Zhao Zhou, again, translation says, what do I have to do? How, how can I attain it? How do, and Nantuan says, well, if you try to attain it, you distance yourself from it, or you try to, if you pursue it, you turn yourself away from it. Um, you know, it's the same thing of being caught up in the pursuit of some state of mind actually uh, is another, just another form of thinking, being caught up in thinking that um, steps away from that experience of ordinary mind or big mind or, or the original face. Um, and, you know, it goes on, uh, you know, well, uh, I've, uh, well, if if try if I can't uh, if I can't attain it by trying, well then how will I know if I've I've reached it? And Nantuan says, well, it's not about knowing and not knowing. Knowing is just is delusion. Not knowing uh, is dullness and obliviousness, something like that. So it's trying to make the point that the experience of this ordinary mind, this big mind, the original mind, this experience of being right here, right now. And recognizing that is not a matter of, it's not an intellectual knowledge about it or something that it's not concepts. It's this direct experience of, of being rather than not even looking at something, but being it. Um, and also it's not 
not knowing, which is just, you know, that sinking into yourself, which is lack of awareness. Um, so I think they are fundamental. They are essentially the same. They're just different words pointing at the same thing. Thank you. It's okay. Hey, good evening, Douglas. Um, I was wondering if you thought that uh, Kensho experiences were um, kind of, man, how do I put this? Like something that can be experienced across religions or is it something exclusive to Zen Buddhism? Like, or is it describing a kind of natural, like if a Christian has a religious experience, do you think it would be similar in content to uh, a Zen Buddhist uh, enlightenment experience? Um, that's, that's hard to say because our cognitive maps that we apply to all of our experience, we never get away from those folks. I think whatever, I, I'm not sure that there's such a thing as a pure experience or a pure Kinsho experience. I would think they would, they would be very much the same experience, but you would, in recognizing it and trying to make sense of it, you would apply some sort of worldview um, so, uh, so I would say there's a lot of, you know, uh, as some sort of, uh, as a neurological phenomenon, sure, they would be the same thing, but is there such a thing as a pure neurological sort of mental event that also isn't tied up with that uh, some form of thought. It's the same sort of thing of, uh, you know, there's been plenty of writing about Zen when Westerners try to talk about it, 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 Zen as pure experience with no intellectual overlay and no conceptual overlay. You go, well, Zen masters drink tea, so they know what a teacup is. And so, you know, otherwise they're just standing there and there's this interesting, shiny, hard thing. And um, so, yeah, so... Uh, you know, people different people from different backgrounds would see a teacup, but they would have different appreciation of it. So, I think that's the closest I can come to responding to that. Um, I'll just jump in. He and I was thinking the same thing, but um. I think I have an idea about it <laughs> and that my idea could be wrong. Um, but I grew up Catholic. I grew up, you know, a kid and I would walk in the woods and I would have these moments. And then as I went to Catholic church, I would have these moments. And in Zen Buddhism, I'd have these moments and they're all different, but it makes me think like our minds are very powerful. And whether we practice Rinzai and we have a Kensho moment or we have Soto Zen and we have Zazen, you know, Dogen style, or we, our Moses on top of the mountain with the burning bush. I, I think they're all the same, <laughs> but they're all, our, but I think they're all our own unique ones. So whatever Kensho is for someone else, that's not Kensho for us. 
So I don't know if it's really helpful to say, what did those people experience with Kensho? And whatever we experience is going to be different. Um, But I do see, at least in my experience, similarities between secular, Catholic, and Zen experiences. I mean, it's awakening. You can call it whatever you want. I call it awakening. I call it opening up to reality, getting rid of my ego a little bit, seeing my inner connection to all beings. I think you can do that in a Catholic framework. I think you can do it in a Jewish framework. I think you can do it in a Muslim framework. I think we're really speaking to the same thing. We're just doing it in our own mind, in our own context. If I grew up in China, I'd have a very different mind because their language is very different than the English language. Mm -hmm. You know, just their language, the tonal language is different. So, yeah, our mind is structured based on our surroundings. So, um, I don't know. That was my thought. But I had actually, I don't want to talk about that. I had something else for you, Douglas. Um, when you were talking, um, one of my friends, one of my Dharma friends said, you know, we bring our life into the Zendo. And I've been treating my um, practice with curiosity. Maybe these are the Theravadans I listen to. But um, I, um, I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. I don't try to play with the thoughts. But I'm curious that, oh, when I sit at night, my mind is much more busy. When I sit in the morning, my mind is much more calm. Just curious. When I've had a stressful day at work, my mind is very busy. You know, I don't have to engage with those thoughts, but I've noticed that if I, you know, my life impacts my sitting. So if I can bring some calmness to my life, that does, not all the time, but mostly reduce my thoughts. It reduces the bubbling up of thoughts, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to kind of see that mix between your life and sitting, right? We bring our life onto the cushion. And then our, our... Cushion practice impacts our life too. So that's what I was thinking when you were talking. So, Well, and I think that's the sort of thing I was trying to get at in talking about doing Yastani style and Sazen and the thoughts coming and going and coming and going, sort of dissipating energy, being processing the feelings around something that things that had come up over the day or there were going on problems in my life. Um, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that's the end. It's, it's part of Zazen. It's not the end of Zazen, but it is certainly part of Zazen. And I think it's a healing, restorative part of Zazen. Okay, it looks like my work here is done. Can you hear me? <laughs> I just, um, I just to add to what Matt said, which I really appreciated everything you said, Matt. Uh, I do think that there, are, you know, there are experiences. Uh, they say something happened, you know. Uh, and so in, in Christian or Catholic or Jewish, you know, there, people have these opening experiences or initial awakenings, maybe to call them. Um, and sometimes they're very dramatic and sometimes they're less so. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, it's not. And, and as you were saying that it's not a matter of are they the same or different They're You know, each person, each of us is unique. So uh, and each tradition is is different. But yeah, there are, and there are secular experiences too. People, uh, athletes or musicians or, you know, athletes when they're very concentrated and in the zone, as they say, those are kind of openings, 
there are opening experiences there. So we don't have to, you know, quantify or assess or judge them or categorize them. But uh, yeah, uh, so um, this is one basis for, you know, uh, kind of uh, more mature uh, interfaith dialogue where we can recognize that there are um, valuable experiences and, and valuable teachings in many traditions. So just, just to add to what you were saying about that, Matt, thank you. There's no more questions. We can close with the four vows if Douglas wants to. Can you lead us through that? Sure. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.